So Jesus used racial slurs and um, had to repent of his racism. Yep. It's come to this. So I had a uh, completely, completely different episode planned, but I came across a video that I, I just can't not talk about it. I just, I watched it and it was just so horrifically awful that I couldn't not say anything about it. This video, it, it was originally posted on TikTok. It blew up on there and then it started to go viral on other platforms and um, a bunch of people on um, YouTube a lot of Christian YouTubers, they started to respond to it. And I, I just, I figured I would throw my two cents in about this. Um, friends, I am not kidding. When I say this is one of the worst things I have ever seen or heard in my entire life, like, it, uh, I know that's strong. I know that's strong, but I'm serious. This is, this is truly, truly bad. I'm going to play it for you. Um, obviously, this is an audio-only platform, uh, this podcast, and this was originally a video, but I'm going to play you the audio from the TikTok video that went viral. It's from, uh, I guess, a pastor of some sort. His name is Brandon. Uh, he used to be at uh, Moody, uh, Moody Bible Institute for a while, um, a few years ago. It's been some time since he was part of Moody, but I guess he's still um, in ministry of some sort. I think he's a pastor, but it's from uh, his TikTok, this uh, Brandon guy's TikTok, and again, this has gone completely viral on the internet, and I just, I just want, just listen, just listen to what this man has to say. Did you know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus' response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Jesus repented because the woman spoke truth. Yeah. Um, who, who gets to define truth, right? That's the question. The more I think about this, the more frustrated I am, the more startling it becomes, the more alarmed I become, for one, just the historical ignorance, okay? If we're going to be playing 
by the woke rules, if we're going to be using the social justice warrior standards, uh, the Jews were not a privileged people. They were not a privileged majority. In fact, it was just the opposite. They were an oppressed minority. The Jews were staunch monotheists living under Roman military occupation in a world dominated by paganism and Greek culture. The Jews were the ones who were living on the margin, as it were, in their own country. So if we're playing this game, the Greek pagans had much more privilege than Jesus did as a Jew living in the first century. All that aside, the real alarming thing about this interpretation is that it gives us a completely heretical perception of who Jesus is. Think about it. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, indeed had to repent of racism, if he was guilty of the sin of racism and had to repent of it in order to do his job, then that means that he is not sinless, he's not without blame, obviously, which in turn means that he is not the Messiah of whom the Old Testament scripture spoke of. He is not the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. It's like um, what C.S. Lewis uh, talked about, that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, and uh, if he was guilty of racism, even just one instance of it, then the Lord category is removed and we're just left with a Jewish rabbi in the first century AD who is either a liar or a lunatic or both. So, I mean, that that's what, that that's the theological consequence of the ideas in this TikTok video. And unfortunately, this is the kind of Christian content and I'm using that term quite loosely, but this is the kind of Christian content that is blowing up on the internet right now. This is what they are teaching in many of the seminaries, and I hate to say it, but it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse from here. We are living in a postmodern society, and I'm, o I'm going to oversimplify what that means for the sake of time, but basically we are living in an age where everything is subjective, everything is relative, each interpreter creates their own truth. This way of thinking has increasingly made its way into the church, and we're seeing the fruits of it right now in things like this TikTok video, this TikTok pastor who's accused Jesus of being a racist. At least he was a racist up until he met the Seraphonician woman, and then he uh, learned the error of his ways. But he's interpreted this passage through, um, through a, a lens given to him by postmodern society. He's interpreting with the lens of the current culture. Instead of drawing out meaning from the scripture and applying the truth of the text to the present day, he's imported his own meaning, he's imported his own way of thinking, he's imported his own biases into the text. You see, because postmodernism asserts that all truth is relative and truth is subjective, anything can mean what we want it to mean. And because of that, 
to quote uh, D.A. Carson's book, The Gagging of God, society has plunged into, quote-unquote, radical pluralism. Now, some of you may remember this, but in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary uh, selected the word post-truth as its word of the year. And here's how they defined it. Post-truth is defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Um, Ben Shapiro always says facts don't care about your feelings, but um, post-truth, a post-truth society, um, you know, (laughs) the feelings don't care about facts. This is where we're at in Western society right now. Facts are subordinate to emotional preferences, and because of that, philosophical pluralism abounds, and now the notion that any ideology or any religion is superior to another is necessarily wrong. It is no longer acceptable to hold exclusive beliefs. We are expected to approve of every belief under the sun. In this way of thinking... Tolerance is the greatest virtue. Every belief system must be tolerated except for the belief systems that are perceived to be intolerant. This is basically postmodernism. It might be a bit of a caricature. I will grant you that. If you want to get further into this stuff, the book I mentioned earlier, uh, The Gagging of God by D.A. Carson, also a book called Telling the Truth, And uh, that book is actually a collection of different essays, but it's um, edited by the same guy, D.A. Carson. Those are good places to start for further study, but for now, hopefully you get the gist. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that I've never struggled or wrestled with this story where Jesus calls the woman a dog. However, when we come across scriptures like this that make us wonder and scratch our heads it it's not for us to measure it with our own sensibilities remember what the tiktok video said jesus repented of his racism and changed his mind and did his job by healing the woman's daughter because she was bold enough to speak truth well who's defining the standard of truth is it the woman's truth is it the interpreter's truth Or is it truth that comes from the Bible itself? What's the objective standard? And that's the problem with postmodernism, is that there is no objective standard. Everything, Everything is subjective, right? There's my truth. There's your truth. What works for you might not work for me. That Christian thing might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Maybe something else works better for me. And if one thing happens to be better than another thing, it isn't because... There is some objective truth standard that measures it. But there is objective truth. There is objective truth. Think about it this way. If someone has two eyes and a nose, then they have two eyes and a nose, right? That is true. Now, if the same person has a a shadow falling across their face and... I look at them and I can only see one eye and half a nose. 
if I if I make the statement this person only has one eye and half a nose, that is not a true statement because in objective reality they still have two eyes and a whole nose. Even though all I can see is one eye and half a nose, my perception is wrong because in objective reality this person has two eyes and a whole nose. I realize that is tremendously silly, but hopefully you get the point. Our perceptions, our own perceptions, do not negate objective reality. And in Christianity, we assert that the ultimate expression of truth is God in the person of Jesus Christ revealed to us by Holy Scripture. So if this woman spoke truth to Jesus, which indeed she did, she only spoke truth because she spoke in line with God's word. None of us are better than Christ. We're not more sensible. We're not wiser. We're not more compassionate. And we're not more perfect than the Son of God. So we should not assume that we are more civilized and more evolved sitting here in the 21st century than Jesus was 2,000 years ago. You know, therefore he must be racist. When progressive theologians and preachers and teachers take that line, the underlying sentiment, whether they realize it or not, is that Orthodox Christians are like the prejudiced and ignorant Jesus at the beginning of his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. But progressive Christians, such as themselves, are like the enlightened, tolerant, and accepting Jesus at the end of the story, who repented of his racism after he saw the error of his ways and did his job. So what it boils down to is that you shouldn't be like Jesus as much as you should be like them. That's the underlying sentiment. And again, if you perceive Christ in that way, then he's not without sin, and he is unable to be the perfect sacrifice and redeem the world. Therefore, the teaching of the Bible if we want to continue down this trail, the teaching of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is not binding on us today. So instead of Christ being the pinnacle of revelation, we ourselves represent that. And the will of God, as expressed in Scripture, is not the arbiter of morality. Rather, it is our own understandings. That's why this TikTok pastor said what he said. In my estimation, he's perceived Jesus to be intolerant towards the Syrophoenician woman, prejudiced towards her. And because we live in this postmodern world, rather than look at the potential flaws in his own understanding, rather than pause and say, where am I missing it? It appears to me that Jesus is being racist and prejudiced here. But I know the character of Jesus. I know the truth of God's word. So where am I missing it? Rather than doing that, he follows through with the knee-jerk reaction and interprets the Bible with his own lens. And he challenges the orthodox understanding of who Christ is. That might feel good for the ego, but it's wrong. It's very, very wrong, and it will have eternal consequences for those who believe it 
and for those who live that way. Christ is our standard. He's our model. And we as Christians must combat this version of Jesus who was a bigot and used racial slurs and mistreated women by looking at the true Jesus of the Gospels. And this TikTok pastor is certainly not the first one to make this assumption um, last year during all the uh, protests and riots happening during the summer, uh, Sean King, the, the activist, Sean King, he said the same thing. Basically, Jesus was racist. They're not the first to say it. They certainly won't be the last. We must take a stand. And we can do that by taking the scripture on its own terms. You might remember from the episode on hermeneutics, but when it comes to interpreting the Bible, we must look at it in context, in its literary context, but also its historic and cultural context, and we must ask the questions, what is the writer trying to convey, and what would it mean to its original audience? And oftentimes, what the writer is trying to convey and what it would have meant to the original audience is a lot different than what it might mean to us. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying I can do this perfectly. I'm not saying that it could even be perfectly done. None of us can ever be truly objective, but it is possible to extract meaning from the scriptures while minimizing our own filters and minimizing our own biases from being imported into the text. And that is what we're going to do with this story about Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. But before we get into it, let me just pause and say thanks so much for being here. We are taking a stand for truth here on the Bible Schooled podcast, truth as defined by the word of God. We take the Bible on its own terms. That's what we're all about here on the show. If you want to support the podcast, please keep doing what you're doing. Keep listening. Keep tuning in every time a new episode is released. I invite you to subscribe on Apple, Google, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, um, and also the Anchor app if you're not already subscribed. And lastly, share the show. Tell a friend, send it to a family member, anyone you think might find this content helpful in their spiritual journey. I would be absolutely thrilled to have your support in that way. Thanks again. All right, let's dig in here. I want to start by reading the story in question. The account of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman comes from the Gospel of Mark. There is a parallel account in Matthew, but uh, the Mark account is the passage in question. It's chapter 7, starting in verses, um, starting in verse 24, and it goes through verse 30. And uh, I'm going to read it out of the ESV. And from there he arose, speaking of Jesus, of course, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, to help unpack this, I will be drawing from R.T. France's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. It's an excellent, excellent resource that I would recommend. Um, Bear in mind, however, it can be a, a little bit scholarly. So if you don't know Greek or if you have limited knowledge of it, you may need to keep a Greek dictionary handy in order to make do um, in a little bit of Greek, uh, but I still needed <laughs> a little bit of help with a Greek dictionary. So um, just just bear that in mind if, if you choose to buy this commentary on the Gospel of Mark. It, it is excellent, though. Um, in his commentary on Mark, uh, France talks about how the episode of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman begins in chapter 7, verse 24, with the phrase, From there he arose and went away. This is a, a bit of a theme throughout Mark that starts back in chapter 1, verse 35, which talks about how Jesus rose very early in the morning and departed. And both of these instances serve as a prelude to Jesus expanding his work in a new region. And actually, if you read the early chapters of Mark, you can see Jesus begin his ministry in Jewish territory, but he very quickly moves beyond it. We see Jesus traveling from Jewish territory to Gentile territory back and forth. In fact, Mark chapter 5 records the, the famous story of Jesus casting out the demons from the man in the country of the Gadarenes. And in this account, um, Jesus drives out the unclean spirits from the man and permits them to go into the pigs, right? Very, very, very famous, very famous account. And uh, after that, it talks about how the, the man who was delivered from the demons went into the Decapolis, proclaiming what Jesus did for him. That does not take place in Jewish territory. The demon-possessed man that Jesus healed and delivered was a pagan. He was not an Israelite. He was not a member of the covenant community. He was a pagan. It's one of the most famous examples of Jesus extending his ministry beyond Jewish borders. Now, something that I think is tremendously interesting about this is that Mark sets up the theological expectation for Jesus' ministry to both Jews and Gentiles back in chapter 1 with his baptism. When Jesus comes up out of the water, he immediately sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, "'You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased.'" You might remember the episode we did about Christology in the first chapter of Mark. It was one of the uh, the very, very early episodes of the podcast. But we talked about how that sentence, the voice from heaven speaks, is an allusion to several Old Testament verses, one of them being Isaiah 42.1. Here's what that verse says, quote, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. By the first century 
AD, the Isaianic servant had long been considered a messianic figure. This prophecy is applied to Jesus in Mark 1, and notice what it says. God's servant, the Messiah, will bring forth justice, not just to Israel, but to the nations. This sets up the theological expectation for Messiah Jesus to bring the kingdom of God, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, which is the thematic context of Mark 7, 24 through 30. Another theme that the episode of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman fits into, as noted by R.T. France, is the theme of bread. Mark 6 records Jesus miraculously multiplying the loaves and fish in order to feed the 5,000, and Mark 8 records the feeding of the 4,000. The 5,000 was a crowd mostly made up of Jews, and the crowd of 4,000 was mostly made up of Gentiles. Mark 8 also features a warning from Jesus to his disciples about the Pharisees, indicating their own lack of understanding. In each of these stories, bread symbolizes the blessing of Christ's ministry first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, don't hate me for this pun, but the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8 sandwich the story of Jesus and the woman in Mark 7, where bread symbolizes the exact same thing. Let me read directly from Francis' commentary here, because he helps answer the question of what do we learn when we take the story of Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman on its own terms and in its own context. Okay, here's France. Misunderstandings of the Pericope spring largely from the failure to read it as a whole. It is a dialogue within which the individual sayings function only as a part of the whole and are not intended to carry the weight of independent exegesis on their own. The whole encounter builds up to the totally positive conclusion of verses 29 to 30, while the preceding dialogue serves to underline the radical nature of this new stage in Jesus' ministry into which he has allowed himself to be quote-unquote persuaded by the woman's realism and wit. He appears like a wise teacher who allows and indeed incites his pupil to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. He functions as what, in a different context, might be called a devil's advocate and is not disappointed to be defeated in argument. As a result, the reader is left more vividly aware of the reality of the problem of Jew-Gentile relations and the importance of the step Jesus here takes to overcome it. The core issue of Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman is that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, is for both Jew and Gentile. That indeed was a radical notion in the Jewish community, and it's clearly and very forcefully featured in this story. But it's not necessary uh, to butcher the text and turn Jesus into some kind of bigot in order to highlight that. 
it's more than unnecessary. It's heretical, as we've already established. And Jesus is not calling this woman a dog. Rather, he's crafting a metaphor to explain the priority of his mission that makes perfect sense in the flow of the story that Mark is telling. And it also makes perfect sense in the context of Jesus's earthly ministry. He was always using parables. He was always crafting metaphors for specific audiences. For fishermen, he used metaphors about fish. For tax collectors, he used metaphors about money. For this woman who was a mother who came to Jesus uh, interceding for her daughter, he used the, con- the, the metaphor of a parent acting in the best interest of their child. And even with that, the word Jesus used that gets translated in English as dog is not a very harsh word in Greek. The word he uses is kunarion, which means something akin to puppy or little dog, kind of like a family pet, not some, you know, stray mutt that you might think. The use of this word, puppy, little dog, is a hint that the dialogue is more playful than prejudiced, which is something that R.T. France suggested as well. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest that Jesus is employing a similar pedagogical approach to the stories of God in the Old Testament with Abraham and Moses. I'll tell you what I mean. God in the Old Testament provokes Abraham and he provokes Moses into persistent intercession by allowing himself to be challenged by them. We did episodes on this, the intercession uh, three-part series. The fact that Jesus is doing the same thing with a pagan woman would have been mind-blowing to his disciples. Jesus didn't need persuading, but the community of Jews around him would have. Jesus is using this encounter as an object lesson to illustrate the nature of the gospel of the kingdom. It's not only for Israel. It's not only for people like Abraham and Moses, but this kingdom of God is available for everyone, even a pagan woman. That is totally progressive if we want to use their their terminology. That is totally progressive for that society. Jesus was illustrating that you didn't have to be of a certain race or a certain ethnic background to entreat God's favor, all you needed was simple and persistent faith, something Jesus commends the Syrophoenician woman for having. Now, unfortunately, scholars like R.T. France aren't going viral on the internet, right? Postmodern hermeneutics and progressive pop theology are being put out very, very effectively on social media, and it takes root in shallow soil. And that's on us. That's on the church. This is why I do this podcast, to help you think well about the scriptures, to help bring a certain level of depth to your understanding of God's word so you aren't blown about by every wind of doctrine. And hopefully, this podcast is just the starting point. My ideal hope is that these episodes provoke you into further study on your own. Because like I said earlier, it's only going to get worse. More and more, they're going to call Jesus a racist. 
They're going to call the Old Testament barbaric and homophobic, and they're going to increasingly call Christians with historically orthodox beliefs bigoted and narrow-minded people. I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom here by any means, but I think of myself as sounding the horn of Gondor. Okay, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that will make perfect sense to you, yeah. But as it stands now, in my estimation, the church as a whole, at least in North America, is woefully unprepared to deal with an increasingly hostile society. And like I said, that's on us. That's on us. It, it's the church's own fault that we're in this position that so many of the young people in church, and I'm only 28, so, you know, here I am talking about the young people, but it, it's the church's fault that so many of our young people have such shallow depth. We have such shallow soil, right? That's on us. We have to do better about that. We must take this seriously because a biblical worldview is the ultimate antidote against the religious pluralism and the moral relativism of our postmodern culture. So in addition to dedicating ourselves to real prayer and contending for a spiritual revival, which we desperately need, we must also ground ourselves in the truth of God's word in order to withstand the turbulent times in which we live. Well, that's all I have for this episode. I pray you found it helpful. One last thought before we end. Let me encourage you to pray for people like the pastor in the clip who thinks Jesus had to repent of the sin of racism. As the Lord burdens you, pray for him. Pray for all of our fellow Christians who may be falling for this uh progressive woke ideology. Pray that their eyes of their understanding may be enlightened, as Paul told the Ephesians, to the truth of God's word. I will leave you with that for now. Until next time, be blessed.